Invisible Threads, a Go Loud original. I'm James O'Hagan, and from LGBT Ireland, this is Invisible Threads, a Go Loud original podcast. You can find out more information about LGBT Ireland and the work which we do for older members of the LGBTQ community on our website, lgbt.ie. In this episode, I'm speaking with Damien, a 66-year-old retired school teacher from Tume in County Galway, who now lives in Dublin. I first met Damien when he took part in a training event which LGBT Ireland delivered as part of Kildare Social Inclusion Week in mid-2020. Following the training, and as luck would have it as I was on the lookout for potential participants for this series, Damien reached out to us and asked about other ways he might contribute to our work. As I got to know Damien, I could see how and why he would have gravitated towards teaching. He has an authoritative yet patient demeanour that suggests someone who passed students would likely remember as no-nonsense but also a bit of crack. He's extremely sociable and has a lifelong love of Irish and set dancing. While he holds himself with a sense of seriousness over the many phone calls we had prior to recording, he would frequently slip into a giddy enthusiasm during an anecdote that was infectious. And despite covering some heavy subjects, I always hung up the phone in a good mood. Before we get into the interview, I wanted to note that we spoke about the impact of Section 37.1 on LGBT teachers in Ireland throughout Damien's career. There was an amendment in 2015 which meant that schools could no longer discriminate against LGBT teachers on the grounds of maintaining their religious ethos. However, recent research has shown that many teachers still fear for job prospects if they reveal their LGBT identity, with as many as 4,000 primary teachers across Ireland who are uncomfortable revealing their LGBT identity to their employers. So while much has been achieved, there's still more work to do. I started by asking Damien when he began to realise that his identity was setting him apart from his peers. I wasn't able to name what I was, but I knew how I was feeling and that I was attracted to men. There was no representation. We didn't have the language around it. But the part that I didn't understand, I wasn't in fear of that. So I named it in my first year in college when um, I met another man and I said, that's the name for what I am, you know. Like, in a sense, there was a relief because I felt it was kind of a legitimate place to be. So I went into an 11-year relationship at that point. So being gay was, a, was my normal way of living. You basically moved from Tume to, to Dublin for college and almost instantly went into a relationship. What year What year would that have been? Just uh, 75. So it still would have been quite an underground scene. Yeah, 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 of course. It's interesting you, were, you use the word scene because I wasn't part mm-hmm. of a scene. It was purely the relationship. We had some gay friends and I'm sure there was a gay scene at the time, but my life wasn't part of that. So it was kind of very much living this gay life, but in in sense removed from the um, the regular gay scene that was developing at that time. And how integrated was that gay part of your life with the, the home part of your life and say the employment and work part of your life? Did it need to be completely siloed and separate? It was totally separate. I mean, people knew about him and they would have met him, but it didn't integrate into my I say my family home life in the west of Ireland, it was hidden. And in my professional life, because I was a school teacher, well, I definitely hid it. I was ashamed to be gay. So that's why I hid it. Tell me a bit about that feeling of shame. Where did it come from? You mentioned that you hadn't necessarily seen much representation when you were younger. So what were the fears? 
Very interesting question because I didn't experience any problems growing up, okay? Went through school unscathed. But in college, there was um, there were two people who homophobic bullied me in a very subtle way. So that was the first taste of that awful fear, shame-based experience that I had. And I, I suppose I would say that that consolidated that they, my hiding, the fear and the shame. I knew that it just had to be hidden. And even among my friends, I never admitted to it. Everybody knew it, but it was still, I was still uh, afraid to say it. And what I did to counter that is I chose friends who are more alternative within the college community as a safe place. So for my four years in college, I never came out except if it was to gay friends that my partner generally had and they they shared heterosexual friends that we had. It wasn't mentioned, you know. The college experience was a nightmare for me, basically. It was survival. And I remember I I went back to do postgrad in the college about, I don't know, 30 years later. And I had nightmares before I went back for the, throughout that year, I always disliked it because it represented me having to repress myself. How much of that was linked in, do you think, to to your sex? sexuality and was it within yourself or was there a fear of being outed and that could have a repercussion for you on your actual performance and standing within the college or where was that coming from? Well my, my fear was the reaction from the other students that if they decided to kind of let this run and if it, if it, if it mm-hmm. got legs I felt that my life would be unbearable there you know. And it's sort of an, a feeling of you have a secret and we know it and yeah. we have power over you almost like a blackmail feel. So first, you stayed with your partner for about 11 years, mm-hmm. and that would have brought you from the mid-70s up until the, the late 80s? 87, it, uh, I left Ireland to start a new life. So I headed to Australia, and that was the first time where I had, a, I suppose, an openly gay life and part of a, of a gay community. So like, you know, all my friends were gay, but it was great fun. I had this totally gay life with no fear. I no longer had to hide. So you, you only stayed in Australia for a year, was it, and then yeah. before you, you moved back and you came back to the UK. And again, the UK is a much more open society. Yeah, I um, moved to London. London and as well as that year in Australia, they were four of the best years of my life. And I was a teacher there, but there was no problem about being gay. I mean, I was out to everybody, not not out to the parents and the children, but I felt professionally comfortable, except and then Maggie Thatcher brought in Clause 28, which meant that we weren't allowed to project any positive image of the LGBT community in our teaching. So that was the only horrific uh, part about that. As you move back to Ireland as well, but do you think that that impact of the Section 28 and, and also then the Catholic Church had an impact on your ability to be a good teacher in terms of witnessing perhaps situations where you would want to intervene or where you could be, I suppose, protective of or supportive of a student who maybe you, you saw was being bullied for, for those reasons or was being p- put, picked on because of their, their sexuality. Would you have felt empowered to, to, I suppose, advocate on behalf of those sort of, those sort of children? That's an interesting question. I have to say, I wasn't aware of it when I was in the UK. But when I returned to Ireland, I was very aware that if I should come to a child's defence who was being bullied and because they were gay or, you know, the other kids were picking it up, I was always aware, how would that be construed? I was more aware of that when I returned to Ireland than I was in London. Maybe I just wasn't aware in London because when I when I was living in London, this is my, you know, London, London Australia, 
was my first time being a single man, you know, and um, work was purely something I did for a few hours every day <laughs> between going out. <laughs> you went through a period of time, you, you lived very out and you were able just to be yourself in a professional capacity. When you made the decision to come back to Ireland, were you worried you were going to have to give that up? Making the decision to come back was very, very difficult. I was on the famous career break and I had my five years was done. And I remember my mother saying to me, but, you know, she said, this is a chance for you to see, would you like to live in Ireland again? You know, would you like, would you like to be a teacher? So I said, OK, you know what, I'll come back and I'll see. And for that first year, I regretted coming back because I had forgotten what it was like to work where your boss was the Archbishop of Dublin. And I came back in 92. It was a year later when I was 37 years of age when homosexuality was decriminalised. And certainly you wouldn't be saying that you were gay in a Catholic school. So there I go back into in the staff room, hiding, hiding, hiding. It must have been very demoralising. Well, after four months, I couldn't take it anymore. And I had a nervous breakdown. Going back into that closet was one of the hardest things I've done in my life. And there are gay teachers who never left Ireland, so they never knew what it was to be out of that closet. But like to be catapulted back, what felt like back in, for me, back into the 1950s. And that took a huge emotional toll on Well, I was out of work for five months, you know. How did you rebuild yourself in that five-month period? For a period after that, you would have had to just make your peace with the fact the choice you had made about the career you were going to have in this country meant that there was there wasn't going to be the freedom to be out as you had been in the UK or in Australia. So how did you prepare yourself for that? There are a few things um, in my favour in that uh, there was one particular um, male teacher who happened to be a friend of mine from back in college days, and he was very well liked on the staff, and they knew that he was that I was a personal friend of his. And then I had um, a few other female teachers. They were friends outside of school. They were kind of my protectors in a way. But I think the greatest thing of all was that I was teaching in a boys' school and there was a girls' school as well, you know. And I personally knew the principal of the girls' school, outside school. And we met for a coffee and she said, I've been talking to the male prince, my principal, and we're prepared to help you with your coming out if that will help to solve this problem for you of where you are at the moment, of this awful place that you're in. And then I felt that who I was was respected because I was able to say yeah. who I was. Yeah. On the flip side of this, coming back to Ireland will have put you in, in a closer proximity then to your family. Uh, who who may not have been as much a part of your life since you had had been in, in Dublin and, and away travelling. Were you worried about coming out then and the impact that might have on, on your relationships then? Because I suppose you would have needed to explain something about why you were now taking this break from work. Uh, well, things were so bad that I didn't visit the, the west of Ireland during that time. And at that point, it wasn't on my agenda to talk about the fact that I was gay. But my mother's sister, who um, lived in London, had a background in psychiatric nursing. So... Coming to the last month of being out of work, we, we were chatting and I said, I need to come out to my parents. And I said, I am willing to lose my parents than to lose myself. So I put myself first and I said, being able to say who I am is more important than my parents' acceptance. If they accept me, fine. But I was not going to compromise, sell myself short. I had finished selling myself short. And that was like a big risk, you know. But can you imagine, like, it was 1993, pre-decriminalization. 
I was 37 years of age, 37 years in a closet, the year that homosexuality was going to be decriminalized. Can you imagine what it was for 37 years of your life to feel that it wasn't okay to be who you were? What message does it send to somebody when you know that, you know, in general, you're not accepted? There's something wrong with you. Getting all those subliminal messages all the time. Well, so in June of 1993, I wrote to my parents. My aunt told me that she had done a tiny bit of prep with them in the previous summer when she was visiting. She said, Mm -hmm. my dad was very open. My mother shut down on it. So I I wrote to them to say that I was coming to see them at the weekend. So I I arrived home and we had the cup of tea and the sandwich on a Friday night. And after about maybe two quarters of an hour, I said to myself, okay, we better get this show on the road, you know? So I said, okay. So I I wrote to you, told you I was coming down. And um, I started talking about it. And my mother was in a, a walking frame at that stage, sitting in an armchair. And she beckoned me over and she said, oh, my God, she said, isn't it dreadful that you had to endure all of that for so many years? And my dad, his comment was, there's always been gay men because he knew somebody who a gay man who struggled in a marriage that didn't work. And he had great compassion for that man. And uh, then we were done. We talked more. I talked about the pain of hiding it. And uh, she beckoned me over again. And she said, oh, my goodness. Oh, I really wish you hadn't to go through all of that. And like, I just think hats off to them. Early 80s. And I couldn't have had a better outing. Yeah. And when I think of how they took on board something that they really had to kind of, you know, get their heads around. And I think if in life I can get my head around something that I find is very difficult, I'll be a great man as they were great people. Absolutely. And I think that's that's a wonderful way to, to look at it, because these are people who came from a time when the positive displays for, for LGBT were non-existent. But they knew that compassion and empathy and love were more important than any of the things that they may have heard and points to the power of particularly when when you mention your your father kind of having compassion for that man who was in the marriage that didn't work the importance of knowing and being visible and understanding other people's experiences it's quite it's it's quite inspirational actually yeah i remember actually you know the, the principle that i had and i always remember him saying you know there's nothing better to kind of shift prejudice than knowing somebody in that situation you know Yes. And uh, like you said about my dad, knowing that man, you know, it helps you to understand it. And I suppose like that's probably been for yourself going through your career. You will have been that person for quite a few other people. I know that you were involved then with the, the, the LGBT group that was set up within the National School, National Teachers Organization to work on behalf of LGBT National School teachers. So how, how did that come about? I know you were you were involved in it from its from its beginning. Yeah, well, it was it was prompted by some man who. Uh, who was doing, um, I think, a master's in the area of uh, sexual orientation and um, LGBT teachers in that general area. I'm not sure of the specifics. And I think he he raised it with the INTO. So the INTO called a meeting. I had now moved my Catholic school to uh, a school that uh, was non-denominational. So I didn't have that fear anymore, okay? And uh, so a, a meeting was called. I think about, I don't know, 20, 25 of us arrived at the meeting. And people were so terrified they came tanked up with gin and tonics or with glasses on, with caps on. And uh, like I just breezed in because I didn't have any fear about being gay because I was working for a non-denominational employer. So I remember John Carr was, he was the general secretary. He spoke and I said, this man really gets it. 
this man knows what it's like for us. Everything he said showed such respect for who. So we weren't being patronized. So they said, okay, you know, how about setting up your own committee? And we had 100% support from the INTO. While everyone's experience is different and everyone's journey through life is unique, there are a common set of issues which we all face at different times or which impact certain groups of people at different times in their lives. I chatted with clinical psychologist and head of the Department of Psychology at St. Vincent's University Hospital, Dr. Paul Dalton, about a few of these more common issues, how they affect people, where they have come from and what we can do to confront them. Today, diversity and inclusion are seen as positive and proactively encouraged throughout society, with awareness and inclusivity measures breaking down barriers for LGBTQ inclusion, allowing us to feel respected, valued and safe to express ourselves. This hasn't always been the case, and Paul told me a little about how important it is to have these basic needs met in order to flourish. Without love, we don't survive you know, from from the moment we come into the world, our well-being and actually our very lives are dependent on on love and the care of other human beings. Gay, straight, whoever we are, we go to huge lengths to be accepted and loved by other human beings. And many of us make huge sacrifices in order to, to fit in. And we lived in uh, an Ireland you know, you had to conform. It was a black and white country. You know, there was there was no colour. There were no shades of grey. And the control that was exerted over people and the damage that that did to people, we will be feeling for many, many, many generations to come. The lives that were interrupted in that form of a fundamentalist state And I think really important to say the resilience that we also saw that many individuals who actually defied that that strong arm of the state that they found themselves in, the state highly aligned or some would say controlled by the Catholic Church. So, So there were huge examples, many, many and huge examples of people who nonetheless found their voice and found their way and that to me is just an incredible testament to human resilience but but the comparative the reparative therapy or imagine to repair so lgbt people are broken and need to be repaired the control the coercion was so strong that sometimes lgbt people sought that therapy out themselves that's that's heartbreaking and the shame on mental health professionals who administer it and continue to administer it. When we had the launch for that, I remember going up to the INTO for some reason. And for the first time in my life, walking through that door, I said, this is my union as well. And it was strange. The first pride we walked in, most of the group were not out. It needed four people to carry the banner. And my recollection was that there was only myself and one other person out enough to be able to carry it. So I had to ask people 
on the footpath, could they come and carry the banner for a little while? And I think one of the fantastic things at the time was the president of the INTO marched with us. And I was thinking, doesn't that man have great courage? Because you know what? You're guilty by association. He stood with us when we only had two people from our group who were able to carry that banner and he marched with us. And to think that we were the groundbreakers in establishing rights and trying to fight against Section 37.1. What exactly does 37.1 mean? I know I know it has something to do with a religious exemption uh, around employment in certain circumstances. So Section 37.1 is that a religious uh, employer of any denomination is entitled to discriminate against an employee where they deem the lifestyle are the actions of that person to be contrary to the ethos of their religion. So in other words, you know, um, many religions think that homosexuality is wrong. So then within the equality law, they are quite entitled to sack you from your job, to not employ you, to discriminate against you at an interview if you're going for a promotion. So just by virtue of being gay, that was grounds for them to discriminate against you. And the thing is, the most difficult part for us about this discrimination is, is that it's invisible discrimination. So like a lot of people didn't call, get called for interviews and they didn't get promotion, but it's all invisible. You can't pinpoint it. Absolutely. When something is invisible like that and when you can't pinpoint it is the the, the hardest to challenge, but also the most necessary to to challenge. Um, as a result, I suppose, of, of being then involved in the INTO, you, you've become more active in, in that kind of activism um, and you were quite involved in, in the marriage equality campaign. I happened to be living in the West of Ireland in 2015. So there was no representation in, in much in Galway. So I went to a meeting in Galway. I met, there was another young boy at that meeting and we were living in Tum. So we said we'd do the Tum campaign. So we had a meeting to ask for volunteers to canvas. We had three weeks of campaigning, three nights a week. We had about 10 people campaigning. I did that with a passion. And it was down to so many people hitting the, the doorsteps with that passion to tell their stories that so many minds were changed and we saw the whole country come together in a really positive way. It must have been strange for you, though, uh, to be based in your hometown during that time. How comfortable did that feel? It was the end result of a process. I always remember before my dad died, we were going for a walk one day. And he said to me, Damien, would you ever think of coming back to work in Tume? I said, Daddy, you know, as a gay man, impossible. Now I know I could be a teacher in Tume. I can be open in Tume. But the thing is, the more you tell them who you are, I think, the more they come on board. That's true. Um, the more you live out and are, and are visible, the more normal, so to speak, it, it becomes for other people. Um, but that comes with its own set of pressures because there's still so much stress when, when you do have to come out. Do you still find it hard when the time comes to, to come out or when you need to, to reveal your identity? Yeah, in the year of the marriage referendum, like, you know, I was wearing my Yes Equality t-shirt all the time and proud to wear it and, and I could walk up that town without thinking oh what's on my chest and the same in Dublin when I went to live in Tume in that year I used to do set dancing in a neighbouring town 30 kilometres away and um, I remember talking to the chairperson of our group at the time and saying I wonder would I be comfortable wearing the Yes Equality t-shirt at set dancing in Athen Rye and she said I'm sure you will I said, I don't feel comfortable. And when you set dance, and uh, they, they were excellent set dancers, you know, and excellent teacher. So you worked through the night and you changed your T-shirt three times because you sweated so much. So I always had two spare T-shirts. 
non-gay ones, of course, carefully picked out. And um, one night I was 10 miles out the road and I said, oh my God, I have a gay slogan on my t-shirt and I have no replacement t-shirt. And I phoned one of my female friends and I said, oh, I want And she said, no, keep going. She said, keep going, keep going. So anyways, the first dance, you have your jump around because the whole hall is cold, okay? And at the end of the first dance, leading into the second dance, I had to take off my jumper and across my chest was... Is far lumbuhili. I prefer boys. And all I could feel that everybody was looking at my chest, okay? And some of those people, very concerned looking people, went into the second dance, then there was a tea break, and then I put the jumper on again, then took the jumper off, then for the next set of the thing. And I was so embarrassed. So I was so ashamed at the end of that night. And this is the guy now who was out to his parents, who was out professionally, who was living a fully gay life in Tume, fully gay life in Dublin, and goes to a neighbouring town 30 miles away and goes back into the closet. And I was so ashamed that they would disapprove of me that I didn't go for a few weeks. And I finally, I think after about three weeks, I returned and I got a great welcome back. I don't know why, but I'm a fairly good set dancer, but I don't know whether I was welcome back because I could dance or because maybe they picked up how uncomfortable I felt on that night. And I was quite surprised that as out as I am, that I could go back into that closet so easily. And I suppose I still carry the shame of being gay. That sort of fear is buried. You're, you've built up the, the walls and the pride over the years, but that sort of foundation is still there and, and it, it can easily yeah. manifest itself. And that, that brings me on to kind of what I wanted to, to talk a bit about next is thinking about your identity now as you as you are getting older, needing now to rely on external supports or needing to engage with healthcare professionals and stuff. How relaxed and how comfortable do you feel being out and being yourself? Well, I now am that older gay man. No, I'm, so I'm not talking about the older people. I am one of them now, you know? So like I've had ongoing skin cancer say in the last 10 months, I've had five procedures. I've had radiotherapy, multiple hospital visits, and everybody that I deal with knows that I'm gay. And some ways I'm kind of, a, sometimes I think I'm a bit in your face, you know? But the thing is though, I do it because I want to kind of say it and leave it. I get that because then it's out there and you don't have that slight awkwardness of a potential revelation if if you were to say something that might give it away. Like I am Damien who is gay. It doesn't define me, but it's a part of who I am. So I personally feel much more comfortable when people know that part of me. Now, it doesn't have to be important for everybody. It's important for me. And I think that's the, the that's a big thing that comes through with everyone is that this isn't the defining part of who you are. This isn't the only thing that you are, but it's a big part of, of, of who you are. And in, in a way as well, society has made it a bigger part of who you are by forcing you to constantly have yeah. to measure yourself against it and how accepting you are of it. So you deserve to have it respected. I, a few years ago, I went to a play in the Abbey. It was about the train, the people who went to Belfast for the condoms years ago. And it just traced kind of the life of women. I, I'm talking even before the condom train, like where they had to give up their jobs because when they married and they couldn't hold their own bank account. And I was thinking, wow, look what it was like to be a woman. And I was thinking, hey, Look what it's like to be a gay man, you know what I mean? The battles that we had to fight. So where you can't be exactly who you are without feeling compromised 
by who you are, whether it's skin color, whether it's um, whether you're male or female, whether it's your orientation, that you not to feel compromised by something that you are. And where, I mean, Panty referred to it as this, the, you know, uh, checking, you know, checking all the time. Well, I was in hospital today. I'm going to be in hospital next week. So, like, I don't have to do any checking, you know. But I don't think, I, I don't think being out comes easy, you know what I mean? You kind of, you, you continuously go in to find the courage to do it. So many people, and I know people say, oh, you don't have to say you're heterosexual. But the thing is, though, heterosexual is kind of accepted. So they don't have to prove anything. But we have to constantly claim space. As somebody said to me yesterday, why do you still march in pride? I said, I do, because LGBT teachers are afraid to be gay. So I need to keep marching. I, I don't believe that if you're a minority, you are, you'll ever be equal. I don't believe you. I, this is my personal opinion. But the thing is, though, you can hold your ground. That's why, that's why I still march in pride. I, I find it necessary. Well, something that's, something that's very necessary and about how the, the protection of your space and queer spaces is, is something that is important. How do you feel the gay community relates to people as they age? And, and, and do you feel it's a welcoming space for older LGBT people? So I think as you get older, I think you kind of near become invisible again you know I, I'm only thinking this now this is not an absolute I think there is the fear of becoming invisible again now in outhouse they have um, there are groups for older gay people older LGBT people they meet I think twice a week so I think that's good and then there was uh, before the lockdown there was older LGBT outings too we went to the Houses of Parliament the old Houses of Parliament and I remember last year thinking that I wouldn't mind putting my energy into something like that. Now, the thing is, I don't want to dominate a kind of a group like that. And I think it, it, when I said it's fluid and everybody's kind of comfortable that it's not kind of rigidly defined, you know. But uh, maybe, there's, maybe there's a need, need for kind of dedicated platforms for older gay people where they can be comfortable. I know on Facebook there's a group, and so that's um, good as well. It depends on whether you identify with these particular groups. but. Um, I, I was I was in Kilmainham, not with the gay, the gay group now, but um, I was there another day myself, and there was a group of men from a, sh- a men's shed in Cavan in some place, you know. So it's that sort of thing where there's um, a men's shed for gay people, and uh, I did a personal development course that was uh, hosted to uh, outhouse, you know. So like I'm 64, like and all lovely young kids, and they were all um, late twenties or something like that, you know. So but like. I needed that as well as they needed it. You know what I mean? And just because I, I'm 64 doesn't mean that I might need help in making sense of things that are happening. And aware is very good because aware do a lot of, um, well, face-to-face and online things about mental health. And I'm sure there are many uh, older LGBT people who are maybe struggling, you know what I mean? So maybe that mental health element could be considered as well as the the social one. So it's, all the different aspects of our health. What are your hopes now for the future? Now that I'm in the next section of my life, you know, um, I, I attended something recently and there, there kind of, there's a circle of what your community is and how it ex- extends, okay? Is it where I live and the building I live in and my relationship with the people around me and that I am gay to those people. So that's my immediate environment. Then the bigger circle is the shops where I shop. They all know I'm gay. I sometimes call them my victims because they have enforced friendship. And, uh, <laughs> and um, so that's my locality in which I live. And 
because of where I live, community isn't as visible as it might be. Then I think the role that outhouse can play, looking at the four aspects of it, the health, mental health, the physical health, uh, social health. So I suppose for me, it's like carving out an LGBT community for older people that can support me and that I can enjoy. And that's flexible that you can kind of go in and out, whatever your interests are. So everything about my life respects my identity, you know. You would like to carve out a space for yourself where you can just be yourself. Yeah, well, in, in, in advance of the podcast, I was thinking, you know, if you can tap into a tiny bit of courage that you have, you know what I mean? If you're fear, if say, if somebody is fearful, to try to tap into a tiny bit of courage, because I think, say, each um, maybe uncomfortable move that you make, the gain is greater. Like, let's say, by being out to people, I think it makes your life easier. From my experience, the more that people discover who I am, say it was with the doctor last week and we were talking, you know, and I said, can you imagine what it was like to reach the age of 37 before homosexuality was decriminalized? And I think in all of these kind of subtle ways of putting it out, and I, and I think that more often than not, people respond very well to that. You bring people on board. And I think maybe that's what it is. It's about bringing people on board. Somebody said, uh, that they would hope that the day would come when there'd be no need for LGBT societies or groups, you know what I mean? But to my mind, if you're a 10%, you're always going to have to kind of um, work a little bit harder. I've chatted to, to guys from time to time who aren't out, and these would be guys in their late 20s or 30s, early 30s, and they have said to me or expressed to me that they feel like it's it's too late for them to come out. Do you think it's ever too late? No, but the thing is, I think it might feel difficult, okay? It might feel difficult. I never thought I'd come out to my parents. Like, that that was not on my radar until that year something pushed me over the edge. It's a bit like jumping into cold water sometimes. And all the people who swim in the sea will attest to that. And just before we finish up, what is it that represents community to you? Being in the west of Ireland, I have a community. I mean, the people in the town know who I am. And I am out in my local town of Tume. So that's a really comfortable place to be. And then living in Dublin, um, I'm out to everybody. But where I live is not kind of quite a community. So my community is really more my friends who live in Dublin. And that would be kind of telephone contact or the walk contact. But for me, the most visible representation of the community for me is when I attend a gala event. Say last year, the teachers group, the young teachers, they have this tremendous competition that invites children to represent all kinds of families and look at look at the knock-on of that but like when i sit in the mansion house or wherever it is it's a mansion house in recent years and i'm quite a quiet person but i would know a lot of these people when i sit in the mansion house and i look at the people and i this is my community When I asked Damien why it was he wanted to speak to me as part of this series, he said that shortly after completing the LGBT training programme, he'd heard a radio interview where the topic of older gay men and women living rurally, who due to fear of discrimination, felt the need to hide their identities was discussed. 
The interviewer echoed all the issues which he'd heard during his training, and he realised that as a gay man from the west of Ireland himself, this could very easily have been him. He asked himself how could he be a champion for older LGBTQ people, and he realised that in just the same way he had been a champion for the gay community during the marriage equality referendum, and a champion for LGBTQ teachers throughout his career, the most powerful way that he could be a champion for older LGBTQ people, and indeed for himself, would be to continue telling a story, and he hoped that hearing his journey to self-acceptance and pride could make someone more comfortable in their own skin, or reduce their feeling of isolation. In recording the interviews for this series, it's remarkable to me that despite the breadth of experience and the difference of the lives lived by the eight individuals who participated, there's one area of consistency. Each and every one said the same thing, that the most important thing that we can do to become a more compassionate and inclusive society is listen to the stories of those who've experienced marginalisation and face discrimination. So thank you for listening to this episode of Invisible Threads. For more information about LGBT Ireland, the National Support Service for LGBTQ people and the work which we do for older members of the LGBTQ community or to donate to help us continue our work, please visit lgbt.ie. If you have been affected by any of the issues raised in this episode and need to talk, LGBT Ireland operate the National LGBT Helpline, which is available on 1890-929-539. We have also included details of other organisations that offer advice, support and information in the show notes. Subscribe to this podcast for free on the Go Loud app. This project has received funding from the Government of Ireland's Launchy Care Integration Fund 2019.